Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Robert Graham. You're listening to 960 The Patriot. And yes, I am subbing for Seth Leipzig. And it has been a great day so far. We've got a lot of policy, a lot of stuff that's happening politically around our country right now. And it's putting pressure on us. It's putting pressure on our brains. It's putting pressure on um, any kind of logic we try to apply to policy that's being in place. And then you try to hear these politicians that are promising inflation reduction. They're promising the taxes won't hit the middle America and that they're just going to hurt the big guys and all this kind of stuff. And then the reality settles in and they think, gosh, this doesn't sound right. So most of America is trying to figure this out. We've got a great friend of mine. Jonathan Williams is the chief economist and executive vice president of policy at the American Legislative Exchange Council back in D.C. Now, these guys are um, fiscal policy brains, right, that work to get the best fiscal policy to model for states. It's a nonpartisan group. It's just smart fiscal policy. And what they're doing is trying to give states a competitive edge to give them um, the best opportunity to have the best outcomes using policy that works. It's been tested. It's been measured on and on and on. Steve, uh, J- uh, uh, Jonathan works with Stephen Moore, who you probably most recently know him as one of the advisors to President Trump. And then uh, uh, chief economist, or one of the economists, Dr. Art Laffer, working with President Reagan. They write a book together called Rich States, Poor States. And it's something that every single policymaker in this country should read to understand really what are the attributes to make their states competitive. And then they look at the overall dynamics that are happening from a policy standpoint here in the U.S. and internationally. What what are our impact points? And they come up with great advice, great information and such as you get there. Jonathan, it's been a long time since you and I have spoke, but I am so happy that you're here today. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you, my friend? As always, I bring uh, greetings from the land of make-believe, Washington, <laughs> D.C., where on a day like today with what uh, just happened uh, oh, that we will all pay for for many years ahead, unfortunately, that becomes a little all too true. Yeah, you know, so so tell everybody, I mean, this is it, right? The, so the House passed the bill, and, and you've got a $700 billion plus because there's more that will be coming from this bill and and the prom the great promises it's going to be it's going to stimulate our economy it's going to reduce inflation and it's going to help all these other ancillary things that everybody supposedly cares about so how do you feel about all these promises coming out of the white house as well as the democratic legislature oh well it's uh you know it's really i called it the other day i was on fox and friends uh talking about this i called it economic malpractice and it really is. And for anybody familiar with the medical term of uh, medical malpractice, this is the economic version of it. We are absolutely throwing fuel on the fire of this uh, just unprecedented inflation, the most we've seen since the Jimmy Carter era. All of us have seen those uh, painful trips to the gas station and the grocery store. Uh, we've seen our 401ks that reduced dramatically because of the downturn of the market. You know, and what we are suffering from is uh, caused by big government uh, high taxes, high spending, record levels of trillions and trillions of new spending during the Biden administration. And what does this plan do? It's just more of the same. It actually is doubling down on the failures that we have uh, suffered from over the last uh, year, especially, uh, and it's going to make it even much worse. And uh, I think, unfortunately, you see the progressive movement in Washington, the so-called progressive movement. I kind of challenge that. I think we're regressive with these economic policies <laughs> yeah, that they just passed. But they're saying, you know, this might be good for them for the fall election. Well, as an economist, I don't care about the politics of it. I care about what's good for the economy and what's good for taxpayers. And what we see of this bill uh, that just passed uh, just a number of hours ago here in Washington, D.C., is more inflation, lower economic growth, 
making America less competitive versus China and our competitors. And by the way, Robert, one of the things I'm most worried about here, as you've all seen it in the headline news, 87,000 new IRS agents that are going to be empowered to uh, enact more than a million new audits across taxpayers from middle income to low income taxpayers to small businesses, everybody across the spectrum. Uh, This is going to be really dangerous. Uh, It's going to be very counterproductive. And quite frankly, given the IRS's track record of targeting political conservatives and others that speak out against maybe an administration's policy, uh, this is outright dangerous. It it is dangerous. You know, it's interesting because I I mentioned yesterday, we talked about this a little bit on on air yesterday, but I talked about these find the money campaigns. You know, if you look at kind of an entrepreneurial capitalistic mindset, we look for innovation, creativity, this entrepreneurial push and we try to get sustainable economic value there. And then you see the growth and you see people employed and, you, and revenue increases for the country and all these things great happen. And it's in a more s- sustainable perspective. Whenever we see the Dems get involved and we see more of this progressive policy, it's just they look at a cell at a spreadsheet and say, who can we tax? Who can we whack on? And who can we skin to bring in there? Forget the innovation and creativity part of it. We just need the money and there's money out there. We're just going to take it from them. And I think this is I mean, we feel it as, as the, the hardworking taxpayer. But there's a lot of people out there that are just blind. They think the government has a right to take the money. And this is just terrifying to me because I worry about not just the long term economic impact from a debt standpoint. I mean, just since this guy's taken office, our, our national debt's increased by about 34 percent. I mean, from 23 trillion to 31 trillion or almost 32 trillion. That's just mind blowing to me. But now now they're going to spend more money and they're going to do it. So they've got to find the money. But what do you think about these agents being armed and you know being willing to use deadly force? I mean, this this makes me think that they are actually anticipating people pushing back against these 87,000 agents. How do you feel about that? Well, I mean, I, I was, uh, when I first saw that, I was taken aback, like I think everybody is, to say, why do you need, you know, arms training? Why do you need to buy all these, you know, ammunition? You need to buy all this uh, new uh, guns for, for agents um, if you're not expecting violence. And uh, having it as part of that job description that then was scrubbed from the IRS's website, uh, that's awfully concerning. I mean, I think probably somebody lost their job for being so forthright as to what they were looking for. But it begs the question, you know, why is it that our tax enforcement agency that should be focused on taxpayer service? And for those of us that have a hard time figuring out our income tax bill sometimes, it's a very complicated income tax. Maybe this ought to be the thing that finally drives us to the flat tax or the fair tax, Robert, to get rid of this kind of thing. Uh, But it does beg a, a huge question, which is, why in the world would our government feel that uh, they would need this kind of deadly force potentially to use against their taxpayers across the country? That That is something that is uh, really horrific, and it should scare, I think, every single American across the country right now. I think maybe we should call Joe Biden the sheriff of Nottingham and um, just the way that they, they took the money and they taxed people and they did it by force. It is it is a, a wild and crazy time. So help people understand a little bit. So, you know, we talk about the basic definition of inflation, all this money coming into the economy with too many dollars chasing too few goods. But other policy points are also driving this inflation. You know, yesterday, Biden made these comments about how there was no inflation in, in this month. And he was so happy to say zero percent increase, you know, in inflation and but then he, he, he couched it by saying, yeah, but this is core inflation, which doesn't really include fuel 
and food. And then he went on to, to, to protect himself like a good politician does where he says, but there could be a cloudy forecast here. And we there's a bunch of stuff happened geopolitically and and there's wars and stuff. And, it, and we could really maybe see some harder times coming. But can you explain to people a little bit about the impact point? Right. It's like it's a ripple effect. You drop the stone in the in the pond and and then you see this ripple and that ripples what we're concerned with in the long term. Right. Yeah, well, and uh, this whole thing has been cloaked in very Orwellian language from the start. Uh, You remember when we were told that inflation wasn't happening or then it was going to be transitory, uh, and then now, now, of course, everyone's facing it and has been for a number of months, and they had to cut back on family vacations for the summer because they can't afford the gasoline to go travel with their family. Just painful cutbacks for Americans uh, really kind of harkens back to the memories of the Jimmy Carter era when he, you know, (laughs) told Americans to turn down the thermostat, right, because we couldn't afford it as a country. I mean, you know, what the, the huge amount of economic growth that we saw during the Trump administration because of making more America more competitive with tax cuts, uh, you know this is all being reversed right now, and unfortunately, it's being cloaked in this idea that this would be inflation reducing. I mean, it, it, well, part of me, uh, Robert, the other day was you know there was so much uh, backslapping and congratulatory language around Washington. Inflation, as you said, the, the, one of the headlines was it was zero for the much, uh, month of July. Uh, you know, it kind of asks you have to ask yourself the question: Why do you need to pass the Inflation Reduction Act if the inflation isn't existent in July? But you know, somehow they decided to plow straight ahead uh, with that. You know, yet today in Washington, so they know inflation is bad. Levels are extremely high, highest in forty plus years. And uh, any economist, I think, that's worth their uh, you know uh, credentials. Uh, in fact, I was part of a letter of 300-plus economists that just came out to say this is going to pour more fuel on the inflation fire, and that's unfortunately what we're going to see, Robert, in the months and years ahead. It is it is mind-blowing, to say the least. We're just about to head into break, and I don't know how much time you have, Jonathan. If you're able to hold over a little bit after this break, I'd love to ask you a couple more questions. But again, this is sure. this Robert Graham filling in for Seth Leapson, and you're hearing the voice of Jonathan Williams, author of Rich State's poor states and really looks at a comparison, a competitive index between states and just economic policy that works or doesn't work. Great friend, great economist, and he's made a real impact on this nation. And this is the kind of stuff that I I don't want to put words in your mouth, Jonathan, but probably drive you a bit crazy. So when we get back from the break, we'll talk a little bit more about this Inflation Reduction Act and this spending that's happening and the impact on you. You need to know what's going to happen to you. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Robert Graham, and we are still on with Jonathan Williams, uh, chief economist and vice president of ALEC, and their policy. He's a he's an economist that I've known and worked with for many years and have watched him weigh in on and write and help to serve and be a great, strong voice for the best economic principles here that we can do within this country and working with some pretty remarkable people to make it happen. Jonathan, when we went in the break, we were talking about this uh, Inflation Reduction Act and this spending bill, right? They come out and say it's a $739 billion kind of uh, spending bill, but after really reading between the lines, it's over a $4 trillion spending bill. Is that correct? Oh, it's huge. I mean, you know, we're adding... You know, hundreds of billions of dollars of additional spending, and then, of course, the taxes as well. 
where you know you have to come up with some real intellectual jiu-jitsu to uh, call this even balancing at the end of a 10-year window because you have to assume you're going to you know, spend more on many of the big uh, government programs that are being expanded and then uh, to uh, try to reduce the deficit towards the end of this uh, Washington, D.C.-style uh, 10-year budget window like we always talk about, uh, that they would go away and not be renewed. So uh, there's a lot of trickery to this. There's a lot of Orwellian language around this. Uh, but the bottom line is, uh, as myself and 300 plus other economists just uh, wrote about recently in this letter, you know, saying there is nothing anti-inflationary about the Inflation Reduction Act. And, and that is uh, really going to be one that lasts us a long time in Washington for, I think, a uh, kind of a something that we can refer back to as uh, something totally misnamed uh, outside of even mm-hmm. many of the most egregious things in Washington that come up in this uh, kind of thing. Like the Affordable Health Care Act. That was a, a really powerful... I mean, again, they're really good at titling it. They're really good at pitching it. They're really good at promoting the concepts. And, and who doesn't want inflation reduction, right? We all do. And so when, when, they, when they label it like this and they wrap it in this little warm and fuzzy, velvety blanket, people just don't go past what they see and hear on the news from these lawmakers coming out. You know, I, I look at things like this and I think about the timing. I think it's... It's either really rotten timing for the Democrats if it's going to if people are going to feel pain points right away or it could be smart timing because they have a solution, right, that they've come out with or what have you. But let me ask you a question about this. When do you think the American people will start to feel the impact points as it relates to this type of policy? I mean, the IRS scares me to death. I'm boarding 87,000 people. That's that's a Herculean task anyway to train them, give them the protocols as they go forward and do what they're doing, unless they already have it in place. But but it just seems like this is going to be where we may think today, go, oh, yeah, okay, we'll see. Oh, look, it didn't mean much. But in a year from now, I think people are going to be wishing they maybe took a whole different approach to a number of things. And I've been a target from the, from the IRS when uh, I had Americans Responsible Leadership. You might remember that whole snafu with Kamala Harris when she was – the attorney general in uh, California, and we were doing the right thing. They leaked our tax returns, and they came right after Crossroads, which Carl Rove and the Americans Responsible Leadership and a number of other groups that were trying to push back against the left taking steps forward, and that was under the Obama administration. But So when do you think the people are going to start to feel this as it relates to the inflation acceleration that's coming? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, the the hope of the Biden administration right now and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer is they'll get some sort of a political bump out of this to say we got a victory. You're already seeing some of the headline in the D.C. media to say, you know, Biden's got his mojo back and he was able to pass this with slim Democrat majorities. Um, you know, they, they may get some political benefit to that. I'll let the, the political prognosticators kind of weigh in there to see if this is going to help them politically or not. Uh, the question is, is how soon does the damage come economically to your question, Robert? Yeah. And, you know, that is a little bit unknown uh, as to how soon some of these dollars will hit the economy and drive up inflation. Uh, but a lot of ex- expectations are what drive economic uh, activity in many cases. And so the expectation that there'll be hundreds of billions of dollars more uh, spending on the way is going to drive up people's expectation of future inflation. And that has its own effect, whether the dollars have hit the economy or not. And then, of course, your point is, you know, how quickly 
could they hire 87,000 mm-hmm. uh, employees of any kind in this market? As we've talked to employers across the uh, across the country in recent months that have, have a very difficult time uh, finding employees for really needed critical positions where they're paying a premium to get people on staff. I, I don't know that they'll be able to staff up 87,000 employees very quickly. And that has led to some to say, well, if conservatives take over Congress again after this November, uh, maybe their pledge ought to be uh, that uh, they don't fund this new budget. Mm-hmm. And as they go into crafting the new federal budget for the coming year, saying this is something that uh, we're going to fight for to say we should not be expanding the IRS to harass middle income Americans and go after small businesses or to have the kind of political targeting like uh, just over a decade ago we saw with Lois Lerner and that horrible targeting of conservative groups. Uh, I think the Biden administration hopes that Americans have a very short memory on this kind of thing. Well, I can tell you that that whole battle for me, I was one of the targeted groups. I mean, when they leaked everything, it was amazing. They wouldn't retract. They never found anything. They pounded us to submission. We spent over a million. It's about a million and a half dollars in defense, legal defense. And we didn't even make it to court, right? We just, we, it was just defend, 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 and just push back against all these different organizations. And what happens, and we were explaining this yesterday in the air, is IRS is a government entity that has endless resources. So when you have the mom and pop business that has to step up and try to hedge against a, a, an intrusive audit or somebody that's really trying to take them down, they have to hire people. They got to hire CPAs. They got to hire lawyers. They got to do what they can. And many times they can't. So they end up folding, right? They throw their cards on the table and say, I can't do this. And so it just, it's terrifying to see that we're talking about this. And then having been a target before and, and being able to, I got skinned, but I came out on the other side in a very good way. It is unbelievable. If you shake it up at all, you are going to be targeted. And then, uh, again, that's that's a great way to scare people into submission and make sure you don't have any opposition out there is because they're afraid they're going to be targeted. But, yeah, again, Jonathan, I appreciate it. I mean, there you have so much going on, and you've really got the tiger by the tail, and you keep pushing hard to make sure that these state lawmakers and many of our, even at the federal level, to get the word out to them as you're moving things forward. But um, what are some ways? I mean, we talk about voting in and, and getting the majority back in our Congress so that we can help to control the budget. Any word of advice for anybody out there to say, you know, how should they get involved and, and what's the best way to kind of uh, tackle this administration and try to hold them at bay? Well, I think, you know, there's a, there's a few things in that, uh, you know, certainly we need to be on the lookout for how many of these bad policies are going to impact small businesses and individual taxpayers and speak up, you know, to write about the, the issues. If you're a small business owner and that maybe you've faced an audit, maybe you've seen your taxes go up, maybe, you know, you've seen the adverse impact of these kind of big government policies. Talk about it in your communities and, and talk about it, write about it. You know, uh, you know, Robert, we may be the subject of audits at some mm-hmm. point in the future. We need to speak up about a political targeting if that's going to be the case for those of us who do want to speak up for what's right in America, to keep government limited, to have a good conservative outlook for our future. Uh, we can't be intimidated by this. So we believe in free speech. I thought that uh, even the liberals believed in free speech at one point in time. I worry about that because, as you say, this harassment or trying to you know beat people down and not fight on the policy field, but actually fight by intimidating your opponents, that is so un-American and we need to fight back. 
back. That's right. I agree with you, and it's it's everything that's happening. So, again, Jonathan Williams with Alec, thank you very much. That's the American Legislative Exchange Council. I appreciate you, and give your wife a big squeeze, and thank you very much for taking the time to be with us tonight. Again, everybody, this is it. We've got a lot of work to do, but this is you've got to be informed, you've got to be motivated, and you cannot take it laying down. You have to stand up and fight back. So, again, it's about being smart and taking the right approach. We'll be right back after this break. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Robert Graham, again, filling in for Seth Leaps. And we just had Jonathan Williams on. He's a chief economist with ALEC, which stands for the American Legislative Exchange Council. And they have something every year. They do things multiple times throughout the course of the year. They have the States and Nation Policy Summits. And they talk about commerce policy, tax policy, labor policy. They get into all the real elements that are going to make a state competitive or not. Uh Jonathan Williams, combined with Art Laffer, who again was Reagan's economist, and Stephen Moore, who we've seen on Fox, Wall Street Journal, and working with our president, Don Trump, he looked at, they they wrote this book called Rich States, Poor States, and it's a competitive index. If you go, like, you read the book, they have all these great stories. I shared a couple stories yesterday, one about uh, Governor Gary Locke of Washington State and what he did to kind of turn his state. I also shared an example where Maryland tried to impose, or they didn't try, they did, a $1 tax on per pack of cigarettes. And with the impact points, those stories came out of rich states, poor states. So what happens is they give great examples of good, bad, and the ugly as it relates to policy. And then what they do is they score the states. And so you go through this and they have this index and you look at each state and they say, hey, this is your economic outlook score and this is a current economic score. So Arizona's done a good job under Governor Doug Ducey as it relates to the economy and you've seen it move up, okay? So Governor Brewer, like for instance, when they implemented uh, the sales tax, that wasn't a pro-economic growth thing. She did that of what she would say is a necessi- necessity given what was going on and the, the incredible budget deficit because of the economy, economy just crashed. And so they were, they were looking for all the policymakers were looking for more revenue. And so they targeted sales tax. And so that happens. It makes a state more or less competitive because now the taxes are higher, right? So you try to find policy and put it in place so that you can get people to migrate their consumption, their businesses, all that into a state. So like to give you an example, in my book, I have a book called Job Killers, and it's the impact of uh, the modern labor unions on jobs and the economy. Again, in there, I put an economic model to give people perspective. So when you have what's called a normal or an advantage tax environment, you'll tend to find, like, for instance, if you have Texas that doesn't have a corporate tax, they've got a marginal tax rate, which they call marginal tax rate, but corporations supposedly don't pay taxes, right? So that's attractive. If I can go there as a corporation set up shop, when I come, let's say I'm a manufacturing company, I come in there and I plant my manufacturing company there. Let's say I have 500 employees, they come. Now, if the 500 employees come with me, as I migrate, which a lot of employees will migrate with a company, they land in that particular state. What do they do when they get there? Okay, so it's not just the jobs, right? So they come in, they have income, they have income taxes, so they'll pay their fair share of taxes. So the state gets a lift in some of the revenue because income taxes, but then they have consumption taxes, sales taxes, all that kind of stuff, real estate taxes and such, but then they're out and they're consuming, right? 
And so a lot of people will buy homes. So it promotes and stimulates home purchases. Home buying and home building are some of the leading indicators on how an economy is doing going forward. As you know right now, that's dropped off significantly in our state and around the country because of what's happening with inflation and with the increase of interest rates. But when when it's an environment where people out of necessity have to buy homes, so they buy homes, what do they do in the inside of their homes? They buy furniture, they add fixtures, artwork, maybe you know, they're buying food, they're doing all these types of things where they're promoting and stimulating that economy. As they do that, what happens to revenues for state? It improves. So it increases and increases and increases. So you have this kind of vibrant body when you have the right policy in place and people migrate to it. And so you migrate people, their purchasing, their consumption, their homes, their everything. And what happens is that whole like shift, if you if you could draw a curve up, you would see how all of these things point to it. And then when you have states like Texas and Arizona that are right to work states, ours is constitutionally based right to work state. It is even more attractive for people to move here. And that's one of the reasons why we've been able to attract many, many, many corporations to the state of Arizona. Governor Ducey has been a good ambassador for our state in bringing people in. And when they've landed here, that whole cycle that I just spoke about leads to it. And the right to work legislation is like the cherry on the top where the unions can't come in and jam people. And right to work, remember, it's not right to fire. Right to work means if there's a union in your business, okay, and you don't want to join that union, you can't be fired as a result of you choosing not to join the union. There's non-right-to-work states like New York or Pennsylvania or what have you. Those states, if they're unionized, those, those businesses, and you decide not to pay your dues, you can be terminated as a result of that. So that's what this is. So it just gives you back. You, if you find value in membership somewhere, pay for it. If you don't find value in membership, you don't have to pay for it and you can't be smashed for doing it. So all of those elements lead to it. And that's why taxation is such a bubble and it's a burden on people. It's a burden on corporations and it's a burden on competitiveness. We want people to buy our goods and services. What happens when we raise our taxes and we devalue our currencies? Okay. Or we have this huge inflation. It takes a lot more dough to buy goods and services And some countries just can't do that. So we'll be right back after the break. We'll tackle a little deeper as it relates to our consumption. Welcome back, everybody. This is Robert Graham filling in for Seth Leapson. It's been a, a lot of information packed into the day as we will continue on into the third hour. But uh, we talked a lot about the spending bill and the Inflation Reduction Act that has been um, or the bill that has been positioned as the Inflation Reduction Act. And I'm just I'm on a couple different websites just kind of trolling around looking at the way people are spending this and looking at this. And um, and they break it down, this bill, into like Inflation Reduction Act provisions, tax rates for individuals, tax changes in investments, estate transfer and gifting tax, businesses and business owner taxes. I mean, they've touched everything. Look again. If if you if you want money and and if you can't be creative enough to figure out ways to to improve an economy, you do this. This is what you do. So there's there's a massive amount of promising when you look at the Inflation Reduction Act. Look what they do with like, uh, for instance, with uh, some of the provisions within tax or the Inflation Reduction Act. Talk about clean energy tax credits for homeowners, right? So they go into all this. A thirty percent tax credit 
after 2032 and they go into this and they talk about alternative energy sources as you get there, efficiency with water and so on, heaters and plumber, you know, HVAC systems and this, and they're really giving rebates or money back. Now, think about this. When they say rebates or subsidies or giving money back to these individuals, that money has to go into the economy, right? So, yeah, we'd love to have a discount in our car because, again, like uh, the rebates for electric vehicle purchases, they're going to come in and they're going to give credits for new purchases on, ve- on electric vehicles of up to 7500 bucks. So they do that. And where does that money go? It goes back into the hands of somebody and it's going to end up in their economy. Remember, the basic definition of inflation is too many dollars chasing too few goods. Now, what they do, too, is they're targeting things that are specific to their agendas, right? So this whole idea of how uh, the alternative energies or clean energy tax cuts for homeowners, rebates for electric cars, Affordable Care Act, premium subsidies. If you've re- received some of these, they're going to Im- increase them. Where the heck does all this money come from? Okay, you can tax people, but it's only going to be a very small amount as it relates to the taxing and the, all these uh, audits that are going to be happening, what have you. They're going to find some money for sure, okay? But that's not going to make up this budget, especially when you look at guys like Stephen Moore saying this could end up being as much as a $4 trillion spending. They're couched it as a $795 billion spending, but what happens is that's that, that ripple effect that kind of goes through there. The expansion of the IRS should just really make you feel it, okay? The corporate in- income tax going up. You're going to start seeing cost of goods and services going up. Again, companies can't survive on the margins, so if they just try to eat these taxes and not roll it down to the consumer, then they'll probably go out of business. And so that's that's the necessity of change. So what does that mean to us, inflationary economy? We get there, we say, hey, we're so used to paying, let's say, $3 for a burger or something, and now it's six fifty. Okay, we've seen this. Look at McDonald's. Look at Taco Bell. I mentioned Home Depot yesterday just for a sheet of plywood. It is insane what's happening. So all of these things that are happening, they're putting pressure on our spending and our capabilities to get there. Well, it makes us less competitive, too. So the U.S. dollar still has a high valuation relative to many, many of the economies out there. So what we try to do is create an environment in our country. We have efficiency of manufacturing, good tax and fiscal policy so that we can keep our costs low. And we try to attract the global markets into buyer goods and services. So you see this big battle like Alibaba and China is trying to really get attention from the consumers here in the U.S. to buy their stuff. That's how you expand economies, right? If I have a widget or a good and services that I'm selling, whether it's financial services, it's a car, maybe it's a massage therapy, maybe it's a restaurant, you name it, okay? I have these things. If I can get people to buy my goods and services here in the U.S., then that's where you get an expansion of the economy. That's where you start to see some really cool things happen, and it kind of rolls through the economy. But now, if it if if our currency in another country is devalued or less value relative to the U.S. dollars, that's one thing. So they have to step it up if they're buying things in the U.S. dollar. And now we have, if it takes more dollars to pay for the goods and services, it's going to put pressure down on our exports significantly. And if you don't think we export a lot, we still do. We still export quite a bit. And as, as it relates to the exports, it's going to 
dampen that. And so what happens? We talk about cost or consumption migration. They shift, right? So they look and say, well, I can get this from Alibaba. I can get this from Vietnam. I can get this from Africa. I can get this from India. Maybe it's less expensive. And they do that. So these Buy American campaigns that we have in the U.S., whenever I talk about that, I say, it's great for U.S. to buy American. We want them to do that all day long. But we also want the rest of the world to buy American because we want to expand and protect our economy, our national security, and so on. And so that's one of the things that these guys forget is they're actually repelling them. They're just kicking people away from us as it relates to spending. Now, one of the reasons why this has becomes such a massive, massive concern is we've heard if what happens if China calls the debt. So we're going we're gonna to have to put a lot of stuff out there as it relates to debt, right? We're going to have to try to get people to invest in our country through our bonds, go into more debt as a nation in order to fund this crazy spending bill because we're not going to be able to find it all with taxes. And so our country, I'm looking at right now, the national debt of the United States of America, $31.497 trillion, okay? The average person, if you were to take every single American, the 330 million plus people that we have here, the average debt per person relative to the United States is 94000 Okay, used to, I remember when I used to talk about this, it was 37000 The debt just since 2020, in less than two years since this guy has been president, has gone up 34% because government spending. All the promises, the subsidies, the free money, what have you. It may take the pressure off certain things. People say, well, COVID, well, great. COVID rolled through the economy, did this. There were other nations that did not have to or didn't believe they had to do this to make it happen. Now, here you start talking about concerns. We look at debt-to-income ratio. There's a bunch of mortgage people on the phone. They're going to know what I'm talking about. You look at debt-to-income, they say, hey, it used to be 30%. If you had 30% or less debt-to-income, then you were possibly a good credit uh, risk. Okay, so we lend you some money because your top side was pretty well. If you look at the world, okay, the International Monetary Fund will measure and monitor all of the world's debts, right? They look at the United States. How much debt to income do we have? Look at Russia. Look at China, all this. Let me give you a couple numbers here as we cruise into the break here. The United States of America, our debt to income, our debt to GDP, if you go over 70%, the IMF puts you in a, in a surveillance process, right? You don't ever hear people talk about this, but they start to surveil you because they want to make sure that your monetary process doesn't tank just you, but the region, maybe even the world, given your bad policy. The United States is at 128.5% debt to GDP, okay? So let me give you perspective on this, okay? So how about Russia, Russia's debt to GDP is 54.1%. So they are way healthy, way better disposition. They did a bunch of things to preserve uh, their their kind of status and, and such. China is, let me give you China, drum roll before we finish this off here. China is 75.9%. So they are higher, but they are in a better economic situation than we are. We are at a point now where if any of you have ever felt personal debt kind of caving in on top of you, that's the way the government should feel. But printing money and borrowing it, it's pretty easy if nobody says no. We'll be back after the break and wrap it up. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Robert Graham. I hope you are doing well. You know, I love that uh, song coming into this because that's my wife. I always try to kiss her in the morning and tell her how much I appreciate her before I head out. 
And uh, we've had 25 years of a pretty remarkable marriage. Well, in October, 25 years. So I'm jumping again a little bit, quarter of a century with my sweetheart, and we still like each other. It's pretty remarkable. At least she tells me that. And I think I see it in her eyes. So it's good stuff. Then six kids later. So it's uh, it's a pretty fun and festive environment. And I've got one of my kids getting married in August, the, or August 20th. And I have one of my children. His sweet wife is going to give birth in November. So I'll be a granddaddy. And so there's some excitement here. It's back to this whole protection of our country, doing the best we possibly can. And so not to be depressing, but we just went into this dynamic of the U.S. debt. Now, look, if you look at this trend with our national debt, it is like, I mean, even Obama used to criticize President Bush for all the debt. And then he went and doubled what uh, Bush had in place. So it is there's. You know, we talk about kicking the can. These guys are great at kicking the can, all of them. Okay, they have agendas, they put together, they don't have any idea of shrinking government. Look, if you go down in Washington, D.C., and you walk through the mall area where the Smithsonian's are near the White House, and you kind of you just do the little loop down there, you will see the massive infrastructure there's there from the Department of Education and so on. And you see also a lot of empty buildings, and you or you see these herds of people, and you really don't know what they're doing. Look at the Department of Agriculture. I think the ratio is something like 11 employees to the to each farmer. 11 employees to one farmer. There's something wrong here, okay? That means they're just too big for our britches. People start to feel pain. They recommend that they need to hire somebody. They hire somebody, takes the pressure off, and people forget how to work. And so the idea is to try to push it, create efficiencies, do what we possibly can. That's one of the things I loved about Trump is he was thinking in terms of efficiency, right? The Gary Locke, the example I shared yesterday that he went to the departments and said, if you can't tell me how your department is going to actually help the state, then we don't need you. And so he closed up departments. He, he was aggressive and he did some really remarkable things that put them on, on, a, on a path to success. Now, Going forward, we look at this and we talk a lot about ideals and we talk about the conservatism. We talk about the values and principles that are the best governing principles. And I believe this to be the case. When I register Republican and I vote Republican, I look for conservative principles even within a Republican Party. As we discussed yesterday and you discuss every day, sometimes people have their R hanging off their jersey, but they don't resemble what we think of as conservatives, and we definitely don't see the policy or the mandates or the standing tall for the principles that we care deeply about. We need more of that, quite honestly. So there there are many of you that are listening that have maybe given thought to running for office. There are many of you that are out there that have thought, maybe I can do more, and likely you are. I got some messages yesterday where people asked, how can I get more involved? The reality is that's the best question followed by action. So find your way to it. Contact the AZ GOP. Contact candidates. Do what you can to get involved because the outcome is what we care most about. Again, this is Robert Graham. You're listening to 960 The Patriot. We are heading to the break and we're looking at the top of the hour. So we'll be back after this break. 